All right. Well, if you've got a Bible, Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. As we continue to examine the ten plagues, the narrative, uh, this, this marvelous uh, drama as it unfolds, as God reveals himself and his greatness, as well as humbles the proud Pharaoh, the Egyptian pantheon, etc., we have arrived at the fourth plague, uh, plague number four. We're going to start in uh, chapter 8, verse 20, make our way down to verse 32, the end of the chapter. And then we'll, uh, we've got a number of things to look at here tonight. It's, it's one of the longer plague accounts, or longest so far. It's not the longest, uh, but we will uh, see what kind of headway we can make. So if you got a Bible, let's go ahead and begin by reading our text. Exodus 8, verse 20, we'll read to the end of the chapter. The Bible says this. And the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he comes forth to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon you and upon your servants and upon your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so. And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh, into his uh, servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. And the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies." So Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, you, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away and treat for me. And Moses said, Behold, I go out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. There remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. All right, now, uh, again, as we jump into this, you're going to see some similar patterns of what we've already thus far seen, uh, as well as some interesting new additions. I, I mentioned this before, but each plague account, will you'll have that repetition. That is the whole idea is, is, is that cumulative effect of the overall plague narrative. But there will also be something that makes each individual plague unique, something uh, not only historic, but theological that seems to be highlighted. Now, again, as we look at just the setting of this plague, the opening scene of the fourth plague is the same scenario as the first. If you recall this, it's kind of one of the structural uh, observations we have made. The ten plagues can be subdivided into three triads, and then the, the tenth being the, the final climactic plague. Uh, but we see the, the, the each triad has a similar pattern that's repeated, if you recall that. So we're seeing in this, this is the beginning of that second subset, if you will, the second triad. And so it parallels, the fourth plague parallels the first. And so what we'll see 
is that we see a second cycle of plagues beginning here. Now, this repetition in the plague cycle is presumably intended to have a very specific effect upon Pharaoh, namely for him to think, oh, no, not again. In other words, that the repetition is designed to have a psychological effect on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hold off until we get to chapter 15, but, uh, and I got a little spiel on you know, God and psychological warfare. But it's, it's fascinating how God does this throughout the historic narratives. You know, that we'll see it in a lot of the conquest narratives. But we see it here. Is God is, is, you know, like I say, he plays chestnut checkers. He's thinking way ahead. And he's, he's softening his target, if you will, uh, even through this, this form of psychological warfare. And this is one of it. Is this, is this the cumulative effect of the plagues, but they're designed to have that sort of repetition, particularly in those first three triads. So again, he shows up early in the morning at the bank of the river, just like the first plague. And so it, it, we see a repeat. Now, again, this idea of Pharaoh returning to uh, the Nile may be significant. Several scholars suggest that Pharaoh is returning to the water in the morning to worship the Nile god Happy. Now, again, we made that suggestion back when we looked at the first plague, that that, that was uh, common. A lot of you know, Egyptologists point that out, a lot of records for that. The Nile was a deity or deified uh, with various deities associated with it. And the Pharaoh, one of his jobs was to go regularly to either sacrifice or, you know, have an oblation or bathe or do some sort of ritual in the Nile or to the Nile in order to maintain this harmony, if you will. And it was considered a very important part of the Pharaoh's job, his responsibility on behalf of the gods and the nation at large. So it's very likely that this is, again, what's going on. But if this is true, it reflects Pharaoh's hardened heart, that even after that god, happy, has been humiliated and defeated, the king of Egypt returns back to him, right? In other words, we're seeing he's just back to, you know, life is normal. He's going to continue the, the process of normal Egyptian ritualism, uh, which hasn't worked so far, but nonetheless, he's, he's, he's hardened in his resistance, which is the whole point of the narrative. Now, verse 21 highlights that this announcement of the fourth plague includes a play on words. In other words, you might see this more clearly in some translations than others, but there's a, there's a threat, right? Moses says, if you do not send out my people, behold, I will send out swarms of insects upon you, All right? In other words, tit for tat, uh, if you will, there's a, there's a, again, there's a lot of word plays like that. I've pointed out as we work our way through, but he's saying, hey, you, okay, uh, uh, you know, obey God's command, let the people go. Otherwise, God's going to send swarms upon you. Now, Again, if you see this, some of your translations will differ. If you, if you have the King James, for instance, um, the flies, the word flies is in italics. Do you notice that? In other words, the word itself is the word swarm, and it's obviously referring to some sort of insect. But there is a bit of a debate on exactly what this is. Um, but it, it, it arrives in the form of some sort of stinging fly. It is believed that the word itself is referring to some sort of insect that uh, may well bite or sting. Some translations will you know, go for different uh, guesses at what exactly that is. Currid, for instance, one scholar uh, that I, I enjoy consulting for the book of Exodus, he suggests that this plague may actually be directed against the Egyptian self-generating god of resurrection, uh, Keperer, I think is how you say it. Um, but that Egyptian god was uh, signified by a flying beetle. And you ever seen the, the scarab beetles, right? They're all over Egyptian mythology. 
So uh, Curran suggests that might be what's being referenced here. We're not entirely sure. But the point is, the flies were not only a nuisance, but they were going to be more than that, right? I mean, this is true of any of the plagues. The plagues are designed to be, right? The word plague, some translations will translate it stroke or a beat, like a beating. In other words, it's meant to be a judgment. It's a punishment. And so they're not meant to merely be... Uh, you know, a nuisance or an inconvenience, but to be even dangerous. Uh, and we see that more so as the plagues go on, right? Because they recall this, they increase in intensity. Some of the earlier plagues uh, are not as, you know, dangerous to human life as later plagues are, of course. But the flies here are more than, again, just an immediate nuisance to the people. Uh, but they would also cause some long-range problems, which, again, once you add the ten plagues up, the compounding of this is going to have a crippling effect upon the Egyptian nation. But, for instance, the swarms of insects no doubt carried disease germs that affected the people. It's possible the insects deposited their eggs on vegetation, uh, and the larvae that came out ate the plants, thus ruined the land. In other words, this may well be the first stage in the destruction of the crops, which will have many other stages to come, right, with the locusts and the hail, etc. Yeah, you got that? I was just thinking, you know, with the plurality of these, these plagues, you know, they didn't really name who this pharaoh is, right? Yeah, you mean his name? No, it's not given in the book of Exodus. Yeah, is that, is that the possibility for that is because they're really not indicating any one person. It could be anybody that's of the Egyptian ruler mindset. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's indicating more than just the, the false understanding of one person, one ruler. Is that, right. is that why they don't emphasize the, his name? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't, you don't single him out. It could be any of them. Right. No, Egyptian. I think so. I think that's very viable. In, in other words, you know, we, we don't know exactly which pharaoh, right? We, there's a debate on that. But why do they keep it generic? Well, you know, maybe it was, some suggest it was just a form of, of humiliation. In other words, the first people named in the book, do you remember who they are? Right, well, I guess not the first, because I mean, you actually have Jacob and his descendants named, right? But the first characters in the story, it's the midwives, Remember this? They're Hebrew midwives. And, and it's like they're, they're kind of these nobodies, right? And yet we have this chronicle of their name because God is honoring them so that we forever remember them, and yet we don't even know which Pharaoh it was, right? There's, there's a dramatic irony in that. But then on the other hand, I think Bob's point's well made, is that you know it didn't matter which Pharaoh it was. He's standing in the place of the Pharaohs, right? In other words, he is this, and... and and I'm trying to help impart that as best I can, but the, the Egyptian worldview is really what's being attacked here, right? God is exalting himself. He's humiliating the Egyptian pantheon, but the Pharaoh is part of that pantheon, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We need a soft, pliable bubblegum heart, right? Not a hard coconut heart, but when it gets hit, it just shatters, right? <laughs> no, that's true. Just a modern rephrasing of a proverbial, you know, biblical statement. Amen. I like it. But that's absolutely true. Is I mean, we, we see this, this constant hardening of the heart. Now, I'll get to it later. I don't want to steal my thunder. But notice in this, we actually have the first concession of Pharaoh actually will take place in the fourth plague. Now, we're going to see that. Just keep an eye on that. Because as these plagues get more intense, and then again, the cumulative effect of them, it's going to start breaking the resolve of Pharaoh. Like there'll be times where he says, ah, okay, maybe. And he kind of gives in a little bit or he tries to give him a compromise or he says, well, how about we do this instead? 
But then, of course, he keeps reneging on all of that, right? And he's, he keeps hardening his heart. But you see that, that tug-of-war, if you will, going on even in his own heart as he's seeing what's going on. But nonetheless, um, notice in, in, again, verse 21, as it des- uh, describes these swarms of, again, flies, stinging insects, beetles, perhaps. It doesn't, it, it's, a, it's a swarm of some sort of insect, it says it will be upon you, upon your servants, upon your people, and in your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of them, and the ground whereupon they are. In other words, the, the description is emphatic, that even the ground where they are, literally referring to the ground where the houses are located, is just, again, a way of emphasizing the, the swarms are going to be concentrated in inhabited areas. Uh, it's going to be incredibly, again, not just a nuisance, but even dangerous. Uh, this is, again, that particular... Uh, idea we see several times throughout the plague narratives, but it's an intentional uh, point of emphasis of how bad the plague is going to be. So verse 22 and 3, however, is going to give us, we're going to come back to this uh, when we talk about the significance of this plague. But this, these two verses are going to highlight a particular aspect of the fourth plague that makes it stand out. This is the unique new piece of information that hasn't happened so far that makes this plague, uh, again, stand out from the rest. And that's namely the first reference to the land of Goshen being set apart from the plagues. All right, we're going to come back to that because there's, there's a, some really important principles at play there. But notice again, it says specifically in verse 22 and 3, I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell. No swarms of flies will be there to the end that you may know that I am the Lord in the, in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and your people tomorrow shall this sign be. In other words, this sign, there is meant to be significance to this. God's teaching Israel and Egypt something as he supernaturally divides the land of Goshen away from the plague and he protects it from the plague. Now, for those of you who don't know, the name Goshen is, uh, is referring to the land that the Israelis were living in, in the land of Egypt. But it's interesting that the land, the word Goshen is not actually an Egyptian word. It hasn't been found in any Egyptian texts. But according to Genesis 45.10, as well as Genesis 46.28, this is where the Hebrews settled in the days of Joseph, if you recall. But what is interesting is the, the word Goshen appears to actually be a Semitic word, and it may be the Hebrew name for that region in Egypt. Uh, the area of the Eastern Delta is commonly assumed to be that. All right, you're familiar with the Nile Delta, right? Look, Delta, it's called that because it looks like... D, right? The, the Greek letter delta. Uh, it's like a big triangle. Yeah. And it's right where basically the Nile is, is going to go into the uh, Mediterranean, but it goes from kind of a tighter river to then it kind of goes out into this floodplain. And there's all these little fingers of the Nile that kind of work their way to the Mediterranean. So it's a very fertile and productive area. Um, but what's interesting is that, again, the swarms of insects you'd think would be all the more in the swampy areas. Right, But the land of Goshen is actually severed away, and they do not experience the insects, which is, of course, uh, supernatural, but God also has some things he's trying to teach them. So he predicts that that will be the case, and, of course, that's, a, that, that's what will happen. We'll come back to the significance of it in a moment. But verse 24 then reports that the Lord did so. In other words, he says uh, the threat has come to pass. The announcement that he would bring the, the, the swarms, of course, is exactly what happens. But again, it's interesting is there's a probably another Hebrew wordplay going on here. The original uh, readers of the text, the Hebrew audience, would probably get the kick out of this. But the second clause of verse 24 
is literally reads, the flies came heavily. And it's the word kaved in uh, Hebrew. And it's, again, probably meant to be a satire against Pharaoh because that's the same word that's used throughout the Exodus story to characterize the nature of Pharaoh's hard heart. In other words, his heart is kaved. It's heavy. It's hard. Right? It's, it's thick. It's, it's impenetrable. That's what the word is you know, referring to when it refers to the heart, hard heart of Pharaoh. But here God says, all right, so he's going to make the, the swarms thick, heavy, all right, uh, unbearable, impenetrable. Right? That's kind of the idea. Yeah. So just a quick question about uh, the Goshen Egypt area again. Yeah. Are, is that area mentioned in Genesis 10 in the Table of Nations? Uh, I, would, I don't think so. I'd have to double check that, but I don't think it is. Uh, I think the Genesis 46 or 4510 is the first time it's ever mentioned. But you can double check me on that, but I don't think it is. Yeah. <clears throat> do, you have, do you have a follow-up question? Or? No. Okay. Let me get back to you on that, if otherwise, and feel free to double check me. But I'm pretty sure Genesis 4510 is the first use of the word. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is, again, I, I'm not going to get off into it, but I, like, I did have to highlight that. Um, it's, a, it's probably, it's a Semitic word. In other words, it's not Egyptian. It's probably what the Hebrew people called that land. But what's interesting is this region demonstrates extensive Semitic influence throughout the history of Egypt. In fact, if you look at the archaeological record, there's uh, a lot of evidence. In fact, it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, because when you study it, biblical archaeology, right, and again, in, in the modern use of that term, biblical archaeology is not very biblical. In other words, most of biblical archaeology is trying to disprove the Bible because it's secular, most of it. Um, but nonetheless, when they, when they study these uh, cities that are up in the land of Goshen, biblical land of Goshen, uh, like Avaris and other cities, they're like, hey, this is very non-Egyptian, but they will not call it Jewish. Right, they call it Asiatic because they don't even like the word Semitic because it implies you know, Jewish. And so they try to stay away from that. And so it's, it's, it just makes me laugh. Every time they're like, well, it's Asiatic. Well, what is Asiatic? Well, it's Jewish. Right? I mean, that's what it is. In other, words, in other words, there's even this very specific four-room house um, that, that, was, uh, that it was rare. Like it doesn't appear anywhere else in Egyptian architecture, but it appears all over Guess where? Israel. Yeah, well, in Goshen, in, in Egypt, and then in Israel. In other words, they call it Asiatic. But what is it? Well, it's actually Jewish. But anyways, so there's all sorts of cool evidence of that. But the point is, um, yes, God is going to separate that land to spare his people from the plague in order to, as he says uh, in verse 23, that to make it a sign. Remember, the word sign is a supernatural occurrence that has significance. He's, God's trying to teach something. But verse 24 does report that the, the flies came heavily, so much so that it says the land was corrupted by the, the swarms of insects. In other words, the ruin that's here described is not topological, but referring to the quality of life. Stuart, for instance, elaborates upon this scene as he just tries to visualize it. But he says this, quote, people couldn't eat without ingesting flies. They couldn't sleep without flies covering their bodies. They couldn't work for having to swat flies and or because they couldn't see well through the swarms. Uh, their skin was welted by fly bites, end quote. 
In other words, the land was corrupted. The quality of life was so poor, uh, the inability to work, sleep, eat without uh, these swarms, you know, affecting everything is, of course, the whole point. And so God reports that exactly what he threatened to be the case happened, verse 24. Well, now we see the extended part of the dialogue that takes place, verse 25 to 32. And this is, uh, again, what makes this plague one of the longer plagues thus far reported, recorded. We're going to see longer ones here uh, a little bit later. But notice this is one of the, uh, the first plagues that really it records this long conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. So note how, again, Pharaoh in this situation, verse 25 and following, he does not call for his magicians. Realize that? I pointed, I, we alluded to that, I think, last week. We, we foreshadowed this. But he doesn't even call for him this time. He realizes that they've been defeated, that they're of no use to him in the battle against Yahweh. So the king of Egypt restored or resorts rather to his own cunning. In other words, okay, those Egyptian magicians are of no good. The gods aren't working for me. So what's he going to do? He's going to wheel and deal, right? He's going to try to deceive uh, Israel. And so it's, it's interesting how this plays out. So again, it, he, he says in verse 25, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron, and he says, go sacrifice to your God in the land. All right? In other words, he, he seems to give his very first concession. Some scholars point out that there may be significance to this fact, right? We, we, we've highlighted this a couple of times, that there seems to be significance whenever you see the name Yahweh used versus Elohim, right? Elohim is just a title for God. It's a generic title. It's used by many different cultures. Many, uh, several of these Semitic languages will actually use the term Elohim or its equivalent. But here, in other words, the, the, remember the big backdrop to the plagues. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh, right? That I should follow him, that I should obey him, that I should hearken to his voice. Well, that, that idea of, of the, he has, recall, used the name Yahweh on one occasion now, Pharaoh has, but here he says just entreat Elohim. Now, again, whether you find significance in that or not, many scholars see that there's, you know, he's just, he's constantly distancing himself from this God Yahweh. It's like he doesn't want to use the personal name of God. Rather, he uses the generic title Elohim. But nonetheless, he does, the important feature of this fourth plague account is Pharaoh's partial capitulation to Moses' demands. In verse 25, he says, okay, you can go. Verse 28, Pharaoh says it again, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God uh, in the wilderness. Now there he does use the personal name Yahweh in verse 28, the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far, but he says, do entreat for me. In other words, pray him to, you know, pray to him to remove the, the swarms of insects. But nonetheless, this, this will actually be uh, the first capitulation on Pharaoh's part. During the time of the plagues, Pharaoh will actually offer four, a total of four compromises uh, to Moses and Aaron and Hebrew people. The first two are recorded right here, verse 25 and verse 28 of our text. The third will come in the locust plague in chapter 10. And then the fourth will occur uh, after the three days of darkness, also in chapter 10, verses 24 to 26. And again, the point is, he's going to try to, because his, his power base, his magicians have failed him. So he's going to rather, you know, resort to his uh, conniving. But again, I mean, you tell me. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You think that the, using Yahweh as just a, a form of negotiation, manipulation, it's not, he's not, he's not um, conceding to anything? 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, definitely Pharaoh's just, you know, he's a... He's a swindler, right? I mean, he's kind of like your classic used car salesman. You know, <laughs> I mean, he's going to get really good at, you know, kind of finagling. And, and in fact, later, Moses is even a couple times just going to call him out. He does hear. Moses says, well, no, that's not going to work, right? He says, no, we're, we're not going to give in to that concession. Well, he says, well, how about this one? And, you know, and he, he keeps giving, you know, these, these different uh, concessions, which in of itself shows the, a weakening of the resolve, perhaps, um, but in and of itself, it's also a form of rebellion. Because, again, as uh, I think it's worthy of pointing out, but the fact that Pharaoh even thought he could bargain with God is another evidence of his pride in that he should uh, even dare to negotiate with the will of God, right? In other words, he's still viewing himself on par with deity, right? And, and again, don't forget, in Egyptian you know, mythology and theology, he is divine, right? I mean, he views himself as a demigod. And so he's, he's wheeling and dealing with Yahweh, right? But he's soon to find out, right? Well, it takes him a while to figure it out. But the whole point of the plague narrative is, is he's not on equal par, right, with Yahweh. Yeah, you got a thought? I still know why there is Moses' great rebuttal. Okay, when we're three days away, then why does he go away? Sure. No, that's good. That's, no, that's good. And I think ultimately uh, it's because, you know, God's drawing this out, right? Because you're right. I mean, it's like, you know, that, that might have been from... I don't know, our, our perspective, well, there you go. Just take him up on the offer and go for it, right? And we'll pray, but not tomorrow. We'll pray when we're three days away. And then we'll pray for the, you know, the, the swarms to go away. Oh, that's good. But again, God's drawing this out, right? He wants to get to 10 plagues. That's kind of the point. You got a thought? I was thinking it's interesting that where the summons or the call that Pharaoh is calling Moses and Aaron, and I wonder if there's some association with the reference to Goshen, because it was God who called Joseph and the people to that land to begin with. So he is doing the calling, not Pharaoh calling them in. I thought that was that was interesting. And maybe some reference to, okay, you're, you know, those people or something. No, that's interesting. Uh, in fact, I think that, that idea is going to become clearer as we work our way through the narratives. Um, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working out ahead in, in putting the uh, presentations together, etc. But some of these later plagues, that becomes all the more evident in chapters 9 and 10 when Pharaoh is going to, you know, I mean, he, he is, he's exercising lordship, right? And he's, but he views himself as over Moses and Aaron, that Moses and Aaron ought to obey him at his whim, right? And so he does, he, he beckons them here, he calls them there. Right. In fact, at one point he gets angry and he chases them out of the palace. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, it, you definitely see he has a superiority, you know, view of that. Yeah, complex, exactly, that he thinks he's in charge. And but that's the whole point of the plague narrative, right, is God is going to break that. He's going to, you know, he's, he's grandstanding this whole thing. Yeah. I just think it's kind of cool when... Uh... Um, separating Goshen from the rest of it because it's like the first part of the plague is, is coming down on the Egyptians and the Israelites. So right. It's like God is trying to teach the Israelites too. This is what happens when you don't listen to me. That's you right. You don't obey me and you didn't trust me when Moses came to you. And so now you will suffer with them. But then he pulls back and says, now you learned your lesson. Watch what I do to Pharaoh. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, um, 
So let, let's go ahead and camp on that for just a second. Um, because when we, when we consider the significance of this plague, uh, well, here, let me finish the narrative, and then we'll, let me come back to that. Because that's a huge point that I think is the whole point of particularly this fourth plague narrative. But let's, let's see quick, let's finish the narrative and see how Moses responds, and then we'll come back to that point. But notice he says, Pharaoh says, he gives them the concession, verse 26. Well, why don't you just go and sacrifice in the land? In other words, don't go out in the wilderness, just stay within our borders and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, Moses, of course, verse 26, sees the treachery. He responds with a forceful negative. Again, in Hebrew, uh, it's a very, it's one of the most, it is the most emphatic form uh, of saying no in the Hebrew language. He's saying, no way are we doing this. And what is the what happens is, of course, Moses points out that what the reader, well-versed in Egyptian culture, understood, namely that the animals that they would use in their sacrifices were regarded as sacred by the Egyptian people. Uh, and, and so certain animal sacrifices were symbols of Egyptian gods, and the Egyptians would take great offense at such practices within the confines of their own land, within their own borders. So the sacrifices would be an abomination to them, as Moses points out. So he says, no, this is impractical. We're not going ta- you know, to take that concession. Uh, so, again, although Pharaoh is, is beginning to bend and grant some concessions to the Hebrews, nonetheless, the Lord, by contrast, refuses to yield an inch, and he demands uh, the demands of the Hebrew God remain the same. So he gives, uh, verse 28, the king then makes the next request for a second time that the Hebrew leaders pray for him. Again, we, we already pointed that out, but he can't turn to his own magicians. He has to ask his enemies to pray to their God on his behalf to bring you know, relief from the, the plague. Of course, Moses agrees to act on the request of Pharaoh. Uh, however, Pharaoh places a restriction on his plea with an only. There in verse 28, he says, Pharaoh says, I will let you go that you may sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you should not go very far away. So it's interesting that uh, this warning is, of course, uh, or this, this limitation. He gives him the concession, grants the limitation. He'll obviously renege on that. But then Moses actually responds with uh, the kind of a similar sort of statement. Verse 29, he says, Behold, I will go out from you. I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and his servants and from the people tomorrow, but let not Pharaoh. In other words, there's his only statement. Only don't be lying to me. Right? Don't be lying again. Uh, so he points out the deception of Pharaoh that he's thus far had. And so he says, hey, don't, you know. But of course, Pharaoh's going to renege on this. And that's the whole point. He's going on in uh, his, his hardening of the heart. Um, so this, this, this scene is important for, you know, a couple of big reasons. First, uh, let me just point out the, the sovereignty of God which we've already developed, so I can just real briefly talk about. And then I want to talk about Simone's point and just hear your feedback and, and see what, you're think, your, what your thoughts are. But the two significant or primary points of significance that this plague narrative seems to be drawn out is first, the sovereignty of God, and the second, his special selection of Israel. Now, first, by sovereignty of God, what I mean by that is recall back, we, we talked about this a while back, but the idea that God... Yahweh, right, is the, has universal jurisdiction, right? We've talked about that. The Egyptian gods were considered to have limited jurisdiction over specific areas like the sky or the sea or the Nile or the light or, you know, the sun god, whatever, um, as well as limited jurisdiction within the confines of, of the Egyptian nation. 
But God is going to display his sovereignty over all of these areas. So he's, he, is, he has universal jurisdiction. Now, he said back in chapter 10 of the, verse, the, the same chapter, he says that he's going to do these plagues that, he says, you might know that there is no God like unto the Lord our God. Well, now in verse 22, he takes it a step further. And he says, I'm going to sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarm of flies shall be there to the end or to the purpose that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, we're going to see him do this a couple of more times. In fact, when we get to chapter 9 and verse 29, he's going to say it again, uh, where he says you might, that you might know how that the Lord, that the earth is the Lord's. In other words, he wants them to understand that God not only has power within the land uh, you know, of, of Goshen or the land of Egypt, but all over the earth. Right? That's the idea. It's kind of like that ripple effect. He says, I can, I can beat you here. I can beat you there. I can beat you anywhere. Exactly. That's what he's doing. Right? God is he's, he's just humiliating Pharaoh. And so it's, that's one of the points of this narrative is that God says, I'm going to do this differently now. I'm going to separate them, you know, Goshen. Uh, so they're not going to experience the plague, but I'm going to do that so that you can know that I am sovereign. Right? That's the idea. But then I think there's also some, some importance or significance to the fact that God separates them, that is Israel, in the land of Goshen, away from the plague. He protects them. They don't have to endure the plague themselves. Now, this is the first time that this distinction is highlighted uh, between the Hebrew and the Egyptian people. And they're set apart so that they do not suffer uh, from this plague of flies. Now, again, I think, let's camp on that. Simone highlighted it. But give me some reasons for this. Why do you think that God is doing this? First, make the observation, which Simone just did, that this is the first time it's mentioned. This is the fourth plague. It's probable that they actually did experience the first three plagues. Right? So they weren't separated from the first three plagues. They probably endured the first three plagues. Um, but now they're being set apart. So you tell me, why first did they endure the first three plagues? Why, you know, what do you think God's purpose is behind that? And then why is he now separating them? What's the significance? Yeah. Well, you, you have to wonder maybe the Israelites being in, the, in Egypt were taking on some of their characteristics of their religion. And maybe mm-hmm. God is telling the Israelites, Amen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you? Yeah. Can you envision that? Right. <laughs> That's right. Good. Okay. So capitalize on that for just a second. I think you're exactly right. I think there's biblical evidence for that. Ezekiel uh, 20 and 22, for instance, if you were to go, and that's Ezekiel in his day, but he's rehearsing the history of Israel of old, and he says explicitly that they worshiped the gods of the Egyptians while they were there. And so there was, in other words, why was God allowing Israel to experience the first three plagues? Well, I think they themselves had a degree of needing to be punished, if you will, to, to open their eyes to the reality that they you know, are, are very Egyptian in a lot of ways. 
Um, but I think then God separates them, you know, in order to demonstrate his ability to protect them and, you know, to supernaturally say, hey, if you obey me, look at what I can do for you. Yeah. On and also dispenses with the idea that if, um, you know, if none of the plagues had been in that land, they could say that it was some sort of scientific or regional phenomenon, you know. Exactly. So it's pretty much dispensing of any other explanation other than God. That's good. So it's going back to the word sign in verse 23. He says, this is going to be supernatural so that you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Right? There's no other explanation for this. It's not a natural phenomenon, right? There's a lot of flies here, and there's none right here, right? <laughs> exactly. Amen? Absolutely. So it's supernatural. God's making his, his, himself known. Yeah. So in the beginning, when, he, when Pharaoh learns of him, he says, who is this Yahweh? So in a way, like you said, he's introducing himself, exactly who he is. And in a way, he's introducing himself to his people again, too, because it's been you know, 400 years That's right. since they've had any contact. So they need to understand who he is. And I think it's important to realize is that, again, God is revealing himself to Israel just as, as, he, as much as he is to the Egyptians or the rest of the world, right? Because, exactly, but he's a friendly, yeah. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. He says, and, and that's the whole idea is look at what I can do for you. Like, if you were to just obey, like, in other words, I'm humiliating the gods of Egypt. Why would you worship them, right? Why don't you just come over here? Why don't you stay faithful to me? Because look at what I'm capable of doing. And he's trying to win their heart, in a sense. That's good. Yeah. When uh, Moses and Adam came to the elders, that God instructed them to do, showed them the miracles they could do through, through Yahweh, and, and told them what Yahweh had said and what he was going to do, that he was going to keep their promise, that after 400 years, he would bring them to the promised land. Right. And... They said, yeah, yeah, we believe that. And then the first obstacle, they said, no, we don't want anything to do with this. So I think he still needed some more spanking to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. They needed some more spanking to do. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's, there's dual purposes here, right? He's, he's humiliating the Egyptians. He's, I think, at least for the first three plagues, he's reminding Israel, right, that if they go on in their disobedience, they're not exempt from punishment. Right, but reminding them by the fourth plague that hey, if they are obedient, look at what he can do. Like look at the protection, the reward, you know, that he can grant to those who honor him. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it sets up this this bond between the Israelites because they have a lot that they're going to be going through the next you know forty plus years or whatever you know. As That's right. As this people group, and um, so separating them from all of that, but also Good. Okay, so there's there's the other angle is I think the, the the importance of God distinguishing Israel from Egypt is important because he's trying to this is the first of three times in the uh, those are the references if you're interested, but those this is the first of three times in the plague narratives where this idea of the separation between Israel and Egypt, you know, uh, the Hebrews and the Egyptians appears. But this is going to be hugely important um, because God is, is starting to distinguish his people from all people on the face of the earth. Why? Because God has a special design in play, right, in mind for the Hebrew nation. We'll see in, later in, in Deuteronomy 10, Moses will say that God, 
you know, selected Israel from among all the nations. In Exodus 19, we'll get there in due time, but God calls them a holy, distinct, separate nation, a kingdom of priests. God is going to use them to specifically, in their history, to specifically reveal himself to the rest of the world. And so right now, he's, he's starting to do that. He wants the Egyptians to see that, look, I'm, my people are different. They're distinct. I'm going to treat them differently. Right? And, there's, and he's making this distinction that there's going to be, you know, the people of God versus those who are not. Right? And, and the whole point is he's trying to make the people of God an attractive concept. Right? That you want to be one of the people of Yahweh. Right? And so this is, again, there's an evangelistic purpose here. Right? There's an apologetic purpose, a defense of Yahweh is the true God and the pantheon of Egypt is false. But there's an evangelistic purpose. Please come, right? Be you know, a worshiper of Yahweh. Catherine, then we'll come up. No, that's good. So um, we're going to see a bigger, you made a distinction or a point that was really good that we're going to see this more later develop in chapter 33, for instance. But I just want to highlight this now, that the thing that makes them different, right? It's not that they're smarter than everybody else, not that they're more righteous. Deuteronomy will say this. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses says, it's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're more numerable. It's, you know, than any other nation. It's not. He says, there was no credential in your part, you know, that, that made you God's people. He says, rather, you know, this is it's God's love towards you. And then he says that it's, it's God's, not just love towards you, but it's God's presence with you. So when we get to Exodus 33, Moses is going to plead with God on this same thing. Because you have the whole golden calf incident where they're, you know, they're going against God. And so God says, all right, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses says, don't wipe them out. Right? And God says, all right, well, then I'll send an angel. You know, but I'm not going. I'm just going to send you to the, the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, well, wait, your presence is what makes us a distinct people. That's how the rest of the world knows that we are different is because we have the presence of God. Right? And, it's, and it's that presence and the blessing of God's presence upon the people that is what marks them out as different from everybody else. And that presence provides protection as well as provision. Right? We'll see the whole manna and water from the rock coming later. But the idea is God provides for them. He protects them. But they, you know, and that's what distinguishes them. So much so that, remember, even Balaam, in the Balaam oracles in the book of Numbers, he's going to say this. He says, this people is a people set apart from all peoples on the face of the earth. And he's a pagan. But nonetheless, he sees that. He says, this people, there's something special about them. And it's not them, it's the presence of God in their midst. That's why Moses says, hey, if you don't go, I'm not going. Because right? <laughs> he says, we need to stay you know, in your favor, in your presence. And that becomes then the, one of the big key themes of the book of Exodus. Is are we going to stay within the sphere of God's blessing? Right in in His presence, or are we going to rebel and revolt and go our own way, and then of course you know, receive the uh, the consequences of that? Yeah, the flies exactly. Yes, what were you we gonna say? So um, in my Bible, in the ESV, it has a note down here, and this is an English verse anyway. Um, it says. 
says put a division, it can actually be translated. He looks at the redemption between his people and Egyptian. That's a redemption. So he'll redeem his people from the Egyptians. So I was thinking kind of the lines of salvation. In the beginning, we're all stuck in the mud with all the same plagues and everything. And then God does make a difference between those people that he redeems and the people that he protects. No, that's good. That's good. Did y'all catch that? Then you have another alternative way of translating that. He'll set a redemption between. In other words, there's a dividing line. Redemption is the dividing line. You know, God's people are those who trust in him, and they're redeemed. They're delivered. But those who do not, and that's going to become more and more apparent as the plagues go on. Here, we see the first step, the first division made, because the first three plagues, everybody got hammered. Fourth plague, Israel separated. Well, then we'll see that by a couple more plagues, you know, here in chapter 9, we're going to see, well, now a couple of the Egyptians are starting to say, eh, maybe it's this God of the Hebrews is a good thing, and they're going to switch sides, right? It's not just Hebrew versus Egyptian. Now it's the Egyptians saying, ah, maybe we're going to go with, you know, this Yahweh God. And so we're going to see, again, yeah. That's right. That's good. That's good. Amen. That'll preach. Yes. So they are the children of God, and Pharaoh is considered the son of their God, whatever is a demon, fallen angel, or whatever it is. He's considered the son of that highest God. So then, in a way, it's comparing the way that God treats his children to the way that the gods of this world treat their children. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Y'all follow that? The idea of this distinction, and, and this is, again, kind of a big subplot in in the narrative is again Yahweh versus Pharaoh look at how look at what Yahweh can do and look at how he treats his children but then look at Pharaoh and see how he treats you know his children his followers his nation uh, in fact we'll see that a couple times very uh, stark you know in the contrast is this I yeah absolutely look at the cruelty Right, he's unreasonable. He's cruel. He's incapable, you know, of protecting and leading his people. But look at what Yahweh can do. That's good. Excellent. That's right. He's fickle. Well, that's good. That's that's right. There's another difference. Look at you know Pharaoh's. He's fickle. He won't keep his word. He, he you know he makes promises, compromises only to go retract them. You know, but Yahweh is a God who says, hey, and remember, that again, that's a big, big theme through the book is the faithfulness of the word of Yahweh because Yahweh told us how Pharaoh would react before Pharaoh reacted, right? And God, it's everything to the most minute detail is playing out exactly as Yahweh predicted. And so Yahweh's word is absolutely true. It's trustworthy. It's dependable. Everything he says happens. It's unchangeable. Pharaoh is the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> day to day, it's going to change. Oh, that's absolutely right. All right, yeah. Any, yeah, Carl? So I just had a thought. Also, you know, he's starting to protect his people, but also I think he's teaching them that you obey, because by the 10th point, they need to obey. I 
Amen. Amen. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right put the blood back in the bowl yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. does not belong in the doorpost that's right amen that's good that's exactly right Amen. That's exactly right. Amen. He says, hang in there. Watch this. Right? That's good. But that's, I mean, in a sense, that's our story. Right? Is we have to also learn, just like they did, that there's no blessing in these false gods, you know, that the world offers. But rather, there's blessing in following Yahweh. But we've got to follow him and him only. Right? We need to be and, and follow his word, even when it doesn't always make sense. Right, <laughs> but we we can trust it because His word never fails; it never changes. It's always sure and steadfast. Ah, oh, that's good. Amen. You got a thought? Mm. No, that's good. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a helpful application. Are you seeing what she's saying, verse twenty-six? The idea that hey, we are to live a separate, set-apart life, different from the world. But then, on the other hand, you know, like it's not our job to, you know, go force our lifestyle upon them. In other words, they need to come. Yeah. Yeah, it might very well be the case. Sure. Well, you could almost rephrase it that you know what Jesus says in the New Testament: the casting pearls before swine. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, we're going to worship Yahweh, and yet these people are going to consider our worship an abomination, right? Now. If that's not contemporary, then, you know, <laughs> right? I don't know what is. But, I mean, how, how many people today view the Christian worldview, right, the Judeo-Christian life as, exactly, we're called hate speech or, you know, fill in the blank with all of their various, you know, labels of the Christian worldview and biblical morality and, I mean, et cetera. But we are to live separate and distinct and it's going to be an abomination in the eyes of the world, right? And I think that's, that's an interesting point. It's a powerful application, right? Because don't forget, you know, I mean, this is where in the New Testament, Peter links that up that we, you know, just like Israel of old, recall this, and, and then we can end with this. But in 1 Peter 2, 9, the church in the New Testament is, is paralleled to this idea, right? That this 
concept of Israel being a distinct people through which, to which God was going to reveal himself, through which God was going to reveal himself to the rest of the world. He calls them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, etc. Well, Peter uses that same language, 1 Peter 2, 9, to apply it to the New Testament church. And this concept is that we are a distinct people, that we are, we are given a, a distinct identity. We have our God that we worship, and we are going to be an abomination in the eyes of the world. He says, but that's okay. You know, we need to be distinct. And that's, that's really important. That's good. Any other thoughts on that? That's a powerful application. can't think of where the verse is, but it, it's told that uh, others will be able to look at us and apply our love for one another and deliver to us. That's right. Yeah, Jesus said that. Yeah, I, I can't. Upper room discourse, I think. John 13. Yeah, exactly. But that's, we are to be distinct. We're to be different. And that distinction is the very thing that God uses to reach the world, right? If we're just like the world, then we can't reach the world, right? We're supposed to give the world the true, can I use the phrase, alternative lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> We're to show them what it really looks like to live life for the glory of God. And that's what they can choose to do, right? We're to make that attractive, but it's going to be different and it's going to be an abomination. But when God humbles them in their way of life, you know, implodes up in their face, <laughs> then they start asking questions, right? And as we'll see, Egypt a lot of the Egyptians start following the Hebrews out when they leave in the Exodus because they're like, wow, our nation, our religion is bankrupt. I'm following them, right? Like, wow, what a testimony. Yeah. You were talking about that this morning, just at Bible time, that there's many people that you're going to encounter and be around, and the only introduction to Jesus they will have is you and your life and what it looks like. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Paul in the New Testament, recall that, he, he talks about how we are the epistle, right? That some people, the only epistle they will ever read, right, is your life. You know, 2 Corinthians 3. That's a powerful thought. It's like we, yeah, some people will never have an introduction to God outside of you and your interaction with them. Yeah. And that distinction now is becoming so clear that you have to be totally correct not to see it. Because now it's not a trying to pick out, well, what is a false god? And I don't understand what a false god is in the world. But now it's just too obvious. It's right smack in your face. Yeah. And if you're if you're not bright enough to see that, then, then you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. Why did you miss that? No, you're right. The divisions are becoming more and yeah. more obvious. That's right. And our culture is becoming more hostile towards... And there's no towards... excuse in, anymore, I don't think. You know. Sure. Did you have a thought? Yeah. James and I were talking, because he's considering going to the academy. Yes. Which is a secular program, and so I was talking to him about if people with other opinions, if he ever feels offended when someone has a different opinion than his. He said, no, I don't get offended by other people's opinions. He said, do you think sometimes you're offensive with your opinion? And he goes, yeah, sometimes I do. Maybe. Right. You know, and has a really hard time seeing it from someone else's opinion. Whereas, you know, Moses in the passage, he obviously understood the other side. And so That's right. He knew what they were thinking as they were watching what Israel was doing. So I was trying to encourage him, you know, if he does go to the 
right? <laughs> it's good. Amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Like always, boy, I'm telling you, you guys are got some good insights. It's good stuff. Shall we close in prayer and we'll call it a night? We'll pick it up here next time. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we, we do pray that you would help us to learn and take these things to heart. That, Lord, we would realize the importance of knowing you and serving you, being distinct from the world around us, living differently. Uh, Lord, at times being considered an abomination because of our loyalty to you and our faithfulness to you. And yet, Lord, realizing the blessing and benefit of that, that that is the source, uh, Lord, of our distinction, our identity, is that we are associated with you. You are... uh, you have our loyalty. And we ask that, Lord, you would help us uh, to not be ashamed of that, as Paul says, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation, that, Lord, we would be accepting of the reality that this world is not our home, uh, but rather we're passing through, we're going to another place, Lord, to dwell with you, That, Lord, we, in the meantime, as we maintain that distinction, would also be able to to be attractive to the world that is bankrupt in their morality and their religion and uh, their ideas, that they would start realizing that those are not going to work for them. And, Lord, that they, too, might uh, come to Christ. They might follow, uh, Lord, the, the ultimate alternative lifestyle of Christianity. We ask that, Lord, you would help us to be faithful in this, that you would use us in this way for your glory. So, Lord, we continue to commit the study to you and ask your blessing upon it, and we eagerly await the next opportunity to get together, get into your word, to be encouraged by it. So we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.